the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Fifty years ago, my next guest stormed an airplane, got shot for his efforts, saved a bunch of passengers, four Palestinian terrorists killed. But you probably better know him as the once and future Prime Minister of Israel, Bibi Netanyahu. Mr. Prime Minister, welcome to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Great to have you on. Good to be with you. I have, and with your, I, with your audience as well. I have greatly enjoyed BB My Story. Jonathan Karp sent it to me on Friday, and I've done nothing but read it and listen to it. And I enjoyed the fact that you recorded the end of the book, but not the beginning. So I, I got through your accent pretty good at the end there. Let's start with the beginning, though. And an argument among brothers on a tarmac about who is going to uh, rush into an airplane. I've never read that before. That might be familiar to listeners in Israel, but it ain't familiar to Americans. That's kind of an extraordinary story. Well, indeed it was. I can tell you that far from being uh, just uh, an extraordinary story, it was an extraordinary, in many ways, an unbelievable moment in, in my life. Um, and it's, uh, it's one where my brother was pitted against me. Uh, we had uh, 16 soldiers from uh, our unit dressed as mechanics, uh, about to uh, fix, in quotes, fix uh, a hijacked plane. That was a ruse arranged by uh, foreign, by Defense Minister Dayan to uh, overtake these, uh, this hijacked plane that was landed near Tel Aviv. The terrorists demanded that we release uh, 300 uh, jailed terrorists, and if we didn't, if Israel didn't agree, they'd blow up the plane with all its passengers. Um, Dayan uh, seemed to acquiesce their request, falsely, of course, um, but we had to fix the plane to allow it to fly with the released terrorists to a destination of the choice of the hijackers. We got on the plane. We were to get on the plane as mechanics, uh, situate ourselves in front of these various entrances, uh, and then storm on a prearranged uh, um, signal, storm the plane and uh, kill the terrorists and uh, uh, release the hostages. Uh, no one had ever done that before, so we were all ready to go. We had uh, practiced, dressed up in mechanics, white mechanics overall, uh, stuck uh, the red of pistols in our boots. We couldn't use our Uzis and Kalashnikov assault rifles, which were our normal weapons, because they were too big to hide, and also because their firepower could have endangered the passengers. And now we're all ready to go, and my older brother, Jonathan, Yoni, uh, who was senior to me in our unit, um, came to me and he said, um, well, I'm going too. And I said, you can't go. <laughs> he said, why not? I said, well, because I'm already there. And you can't have two brothers in such close quarters um, because uh, obviously one of us could, or even both of us could get killed. We were afraid the terrorists would blow up the plane with prearranged charges that they put on the aircraft. Um, 
And then he said to me, well, then I'll go in your stead. And I said, you can't go in my, in my place because these are my soldiers. And he said, so we'll both go. And I said, Yoni, what are you talking about? Think of father and mother. Think of what would happen if one of us uh, got hurt or killed. And he said something to me that was unbelievable. He said, very slowly and very deliberately, he said, Bibi, my life is my own and my death is my own. And I saw that iron resolution that he had. Uh, and, of course, I, I pushed him off as far as I could, but we had to go to the commander of the unit, and he sided with me. So my brother was left uh, behind. Well, I, um, My favorite part, and only a brother could do this, it's an amazing story with which to begin a book, but only a brother could stand over his wounded brother as Yoni stood over you because you took the bullet and say, Bibi, I told you not to go. I laughed out loud when I read that because only a brother could do that, right? Well, he, he didn't know when I was, I was shot by friendly fire in the, in the uh, storming of the aircraft, and we killed two, uh, two of the terrorists and captured two of the women terrorists uh, and liberated the plane. And um, tragically, one uh, young woman, a young mother, was killed uh, by the terrorists. Uh, but we, we were able to uh, liberate everyone else. And I was the only uh, uh, military casualty. I got shot in the arm. And as I lay on the tarmac, I could see Yoni rushing to me, and he had a, a terrible look of distress on his face. And as he approached me, you could see the white splatter of blood as he stood over me on my sleeve. That's where I got shot, in my arm. And a huge grin spread over his face, and he said, See, Bibi, I told you not to go. <laughs> yeah. I am the youngest of three boys, Mr. Prime Minister, so I identify with Ido through this thing. But I am not a soldier, and I've never been a soldier. I think that's an amazing story. Mama told you not to go. Listen, there are many, many memorable portraits in here. Yoni is by far the most memorable. Did you, be, you wrote this in longhand during your one year in opposition. Did you set out to make this a testament to Yoni? Because that's what it is. Well, I think it's, um, it's interwoven with the story of my family and my brother, obviously, and uh, my father was a great historian of the Jewish people um, and also a great activist for Zionism in the 1930s and 1940s during the war, especially in America, where he met just about everyone, including uh, General Eisenhower. Uh, but uh, my story is woven with the story of uh, the rise of Israel uh, and the, uh, uh, the mission that uh, informed my family uh, and me to assure the uh, security, prosperity, and permanence of the one and only Jewish state. But, of course, the, uh, the story of my own family, of my brother and my father, my mother and my brother, too, looms large uh, in, this, uh, in this saga. Uh, so uh, did I set out to write? Yes, I wanted, of course, to tell people, especially people outside the country who don't know the story of my brother. And obviously, I wanted to bring that to life because... Four years later, he commanded the perhaps the most celebrated rescue mission of modern times, which is the rescue uh, in Uganda, in Antebi, Uganda, of a, another hijacked plane. See, this time the terrorists thought, well, we can't land the plane, the hijacked plane in Tel Aviv, because we proved that we would liberate it. So they decided to take it to the heart of Africa, thousands of miles away, and surely Israel couldn't do anything there. Well, they were wrong. 
They were and very wrong. Dead of night, my brother landed with uh, the unit that I had served in. I was by then already a student in, in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts at MIT. Uh, and Yoni had become the commander of this unit, leading his men uh, stormed the old terminal in the Entebbe airport where the hostages were kept, uh, liberated uh, 103 uh, Jewish uh, hostages, uh, killed the Ugandan troops, destroyed the Ugandan MiGs that uh, protected, could have given chase to the plane, and performed the uh, what the uh, Drew Middleton, who was a very respected commentator uh, uh, of the New York military uh, analyst of the New York Times, said was an operation without precedent in uh, military history. Uh, it, but it, it, he died. He died there, uh, leading his men. Uh, so uh, obviously, uh, uh, it was um, uh, perhaps the most tragic moment of my life. Not perhaps for sure. The only second only to the task of telling my parents, uh, as I did, about the fall of their oldest son. Yeah, that is actually the most moving part of the book, Mr. Prime Minister, when you drive seven hours from Boston to Ithaca and your father lets out what you say is an animal cry. I've actually seen that by another father and your mother screams. But but you had to do it. And I the recounting of that, I appreciate it. It's really a fine book. I, I want to compliment you on weaving the history of Israel from its founding in 1948. I mean, you're born in 1949, but we get the 1956 war, we get the Six-Day War in 1967, the 1973 war when you fly back, and you find Yoni in an orchard. Uh, it's all pretty amazing, but you do effortlessly weave the story of Israel into BB My Story. Uh, by the way, it's available at bbmystory.com if you want an autographed copy of BB My Story. So I, I gotta ask you though, I began BB My Story immediately after finishing Tom Cotton's book, um, Only the Strong. And Senator Cotton, like you, led men in combat. I'm beginning to wonder whether or not that is crucial for countries to put leaders in the position who've actually had shots fired at them and who've had to kill uh, enemies of the state. What difference does that make in leading a country to go from being the dispatch to being the dispatcher? Well, it's a, it's a world of difference because... Uh uh, when you're in these special units, you know, you're hankering to go to take on any mission. You think you're, uh, you know, you think you're a band of supermen. And in many ways, you are, but you're not. Because the difference between success and tragedy is, uh, could be a few centimeters. Um, as it was in the case with Yoni, he was hit uh, and died. Uh, and uh, yet, uh, you have that um, that eagerness to... Uh, carry out these uh, life-saving missions, um, as, as do your men. But for me, the difference was that I had seen the, uh, the loss of, uh, uh, of loved ones, not only my brother, but when I was 18, shortly after I got into the, the special unit, um, a close friend of mine actually died in my arms, uh, died on the way to a hospital, uh, and I uh, you know, I, 30 years later, I came to visit uh, his home. I, I never got to visit his home in the city of Beersheba in the south of Israel. And his mother opened the door for me, and she showed me his room, my friend's room. She left it exactly as it was 30 years earlier. So I always thought when I dispatched men into combat, uh, when I made that decision, I always thought of my mother 
and of his mother and the mothers of Israel. Uh, and and I remembered what what my brother told me uh, when I went to officer school. Um, he said to me, and he had been an experienced commander. He had been a veteran of many battles, uh, an unbelievable, I would say, poet warrior, philosopher warrior. But he said to me, you know, the difference between a good commander and a bad commander is that uh, a bad commander uh, squanders the life of his men, and a good commander accomplishes the mission with minimal or no casualties. And I always thought of that, that the life of our, our soldiers is so precious. Uh, and the horror and the anguish of the bereaved families is so deep that I had to be a good commander and uh, accomplish the mission, but do it with uh, the best economy. That's a terrible word. Uh, the minimal loss of life that you can achieve. So I, I always thought that. And, of course, when I didn't authorize I didn't authorize missions that brave soldiers and brilliant soldiers uh, worked so hard to uh, prepare. And on occasion, not many, but on occasion, I didn't um, authorize it. Uh, they would be just as frustrated. And they probably yes. thought, who, You're right you know, who's this? What is this old fogey? I mean, how come he doesn't authorize it? So <laughs> the unit that I served in was modeled on uh, an Israeli uh, commander unit that was operated uh, in the 1950s. Uh, one of its uh, its, com- its commander was actually Ariel Sharon, who was a great general, later became Israel's prime minister. But uh, it was also modeled on the British SAS, the Special Air Service, that was formed by a, a very eccentric and uh, equally brilliant uh, commander. His name was David Sir- Sterling, whom I actually met once in London. And David Sterling's motto was, who dares wins. And that was the motto uh, in Hebrew. That was uh, that uh, was put on the wall of our the unit's dining room. So one time, when I had uh, the many missions of the unit that I had authorized, the unit commander gave me a little, uh, you know, a little uh, uh, souvenir from this extraordinary mission. And they said this. They wrote on this: uh, "Who dares wins." If the boss dares to authorize. <laughs> now, th- throughout this, there are some harrowing moments. You almost drowned in the Suez Canal. You mentioned centimeters. If someone doesn't extend a hand, you're dead because you jumped in the water with, I don't know how many kilometers of, uh, how many uh, kilograms of weight on you, and you were sinking like a rock. Another time, you have to get a soldier off of his knees in the Golan Heights. In fact, the Golan Heights were hard on both you and your brothers, all of them. Uh, so it's a matter of inches in war. When you're making that decision to go or not go, and this is going to lead me to Iran, what is the, what is the ultimate calculation, Mr. Prime Minister? I, th- I think the first thing is whether you can maintain a clear head in the midst of battle or in the midst of uh, enormous duress. Uh, in the um, uh, in the uh, Suez firefight, uh, we were at the time at war with Egypt. Happily, that's behind us. But we had a terrible war of attrition, and we were being attacked by the Egyptians who crossed the canal to our side, and were uh, raiding our people, killing them, killing them uh, wholesale. And the army command decided to send my unit uh, to uh, uh, to their side of the canal. And we successfully did that one night and uh, ambushed uh, an Egyptian military convoy. And the, you know, this, uh, by the way, not not a pleasant experience to see uh, 
to see uh, uh, people in agony and die is uh, something that I never uh, uh, I never rejoiced in, put it this way. But of course, the, there was great rejoicing on our side. So they said, "Okay, we'll we'll send you another time." Uh, and 48 hours passed between this successful raid and the next one. And as we got into these uh, uh, Zodiac uh, rubber boats across the canal, the um, uh, as we approached close to the Egyptian side of the canal, the Egyptians had uh, dug foxholes every 100 meters uh, without our knowing it, and they opened uh, just a horrific fire at us, which killed uh, um, one of my friends in the, on the boat right in front of us. And I thought that we'd be much safer. And if you want to imagine, just think of these movies that you see, um, like the um, uh, landing in Normandy. So just imagine this horrific fire that is being fired at you, and you're like sitting ducks, literally sitting ducks, in these rubber boats, uh, you know, 30, 40, 50 yards from uh, uh, the Egyptian position. And we began rolling our boats back, and I thought, and said to my uh, fellow soldiers on this boat, you know, we'd be much safer in the water because the bullets, uh, you know, after uh, they lose their trajectory. Uh, and so we both, we all jumped into the water, except the guy who stayed to steer the boat back. Uh, and I uh, I forgot that although I had a, a life test, I had only half inflated it. Uh, in my hurry to jump into the water, I forgot that I was carrying the the, uh, a 20 kilo, a 40 kilo, uh, 40 pound pack, ammunition pack. I was uh, a gunner uh, with a machine gun, uh, and of course I left the machine gun in the boat. But but the back pack was unstrapped very tightly, combat fashion, on my back. And as soon as I, <coughs> excuse me, as soon as I jumped into the water, I began sinking like a rock uh, to the uh, bowels of the Suez Canal, and uh, I realized that I was going to drown boat in the meantime moved uh, towards our side and I I tried desperately to reach back the surface with my lungs were beginning to fill with water I managed to reach the surface drowned again mustered all the strength that I had for one last kick for life and you know at that point you're overcome with um, tremendous uh, just on the verge of panic and uh, and suffocation which is, uh, uh, you know, it's a question, what is the worst death? I, having experienced near death by drowning, I'd say that's, uh, that's pretty high on the, on the list. But somehow I managed to muster enough strength to give one last kick, reach the surface, not quite, my hand actually reached the surface, and somebody grabbed my hand and connected it to the rope on the rubber boat. They must have seen me, and they took the boat back, put me strapped me to the boat, pulled me into it, and I had, uh, that's how I survived that. So what was I thinking at the time? Life, you know, how do I live? How do I overcome death? But that's when you were trying to save yourself. At other times, uh, when you're a commander, as I was later, and you described on the Golan Heights, and uh, it's actually on the Hermon Mountain, coming back from an operation in Syria, trying to uh, uh, save my men because we were caught in a blizzard. We were wet. We were exhausted, and we were suffering from hypothermia, and I knew that we were, if we don't make it up that mountain, we all die. And one of the uh, soldiers in my uh, 
uh, under my command, who happened to be the biggest guy there, had to weigh 230 pounds at least, uh, and he, he just sat. He just sat in the snow. And I knew at that point that he's going to die. Now I'm frozen. My hands are frozen. My fingers are swollen to the size of cucumbers. I couldn't do anything with him. And I slapped the guy on the face. And I told him, get up. And he looked at me with these glazed eyes. He, he couldn't do anything. He just sat there. And I know he's going to die. Um, I had to get him off. And I, I just had to have a clear head. And remember, now, this is anguish because you're, uh, it's very painful. Everything is very painful because you're freezing. Your extremities are freezing. Your feet are frozen. Your frozen and your mind is frozen. So I, I thought, how, how, how the hell, you know, think, what are you going to do? You're going to let this guy die here? No. So I came up with an idea. And the idea was that we had what we call survival kits. The survival kit was nothing more than caramelized milk in a, in a aluminum tube. So I said, okay, I'll give this guy a shot of glucose, and that might get him up. I got the survival, this, this uh, tube out of my pack. I unscrewed the, the top, you know, it's a, it's a plastic uh, covering, and now I was going to turn it around and puncture that aluminum seal at the top of these uh, these tubes. And unfortunately, because my hands were so uh, swollen, I lost the the cover, and it just sank into uh, you know a meter of snow. There's no way I could find it. And I said, "You mean to tell me I was th- I'm talking to myself? You're going to let this man die because you can't puncture this aluminum tube?" And then I, I thought of, uh, of a solution. I carried, as the commander, uh, an Uzi uh, uh, submachine gun. The Uzi has a forward sight, which is a, a little uh, triangle shape. It's like a little pyramid, a uh, pointed pyramid, which is used for the gun sight. Uh, and I called one of the soldiers. I said, hold the weapon. And he held the weapon. Uh, and I took the tube and punctured it on the struggle sight. <laughs> And sure enough, the aluminum seal was punctured. I took it, you know, if you can imagine, like Popeye the sailor when you give him the, the spinach. So I gave this, <laughs> this soldier this caramelized milk, which luckily hadn't frozen. And sure enough, he, he, he shot up like Popped a, right up. Popeye. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Mr. Got right up. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. 
Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.